This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 3, The Prophets in Thematic Perspective. Up to this point in our class, we've been looking at several introductory questions. First, the history of the prophets, how they had surges of activity within the history of Israel and how they had less activity at other times in the history of Israel. We also have looked to see the literature of the prophets and how we're going to focus on the books of the prophets rather than on prophets themselves. Now we come to the third lecture where we need to deal with some theological or thematic aspects of the prophetic material that will become very important in our interpretation of the prophets. This lecture contains ideas that must be considered rather carefully because depending on, depending on your theological background, you may find yourself going to one extreme or the other in the way that you approach the prophets. And what we need to do in this lecture is to set forth a doctrine of God in a way that's balanced and then apply that balanced view of God to the prophetic materials. So let's start by asking this question. How does Old Testament prophecy relate to the character of God? Roman numeral one, prophecy and God's character. Letter A, what's the basic idea? Well, figure 3.1 gives us the basic idea. I'm asking this question. We have the words of the prophets, and we are especially concerned with their oracles, or even to be more precise, with the predicting that prophets do. And how do we connect the predicting that prophets did with the character of God? Are there important connections? Do we need to think about this? Do we need to work on this? And I think the answer is we do. So this brings us in Roman numeral one, letter B, divine transcendence. I think to begin our look at the prophets, we must think about the transcendence of God. Figure 3.2 illustrates some of the dimensions of divine transcendence. You can look at any standard systematic theology and find these things and these biblical references. But when we say divine transcendence, what we mean is that God is above all and over all. And we often associate certain theological terms with this view of God, that God is ase, that is, he is self-contained. We speak of this as the self-containedness of God or the aseity of God. God doesn't need anything. Everything, in fact, needs him. And you can look at the Bible verses and see that this is the case. We also speak of the eternality of God, that is, he is above all time and over all time. We speak of the immensity of God, and that is that he is above all space and over all space. The immutability of God, meaning that he is unchangeable in his character and in his words and in his decrees. And this is why the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, uh, paragraph 1, speaks of the transcendence of God in this manner. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. In this sense, the transcendence of God gives us the idea that God is in absolute, absolute control of all things. And in fact, that from all eternity past, he wrote 
what was going to happen. He planned what was going to happen and that what he planned encompasses every single event in the universe and it encompasses them immutably. That is, they cannot be changed. That's why you find passages like Numbers 23, 19 that say that God does not repent or 1 Samuel 15 or Psalm 110:4. that God does not repent. He does not nacham. God then, in this sense, is transcendent. Figure 3.4 tries to relate the doctrine of divine transcendence to prophecy. And the basic idea is this, that the doctrine of divine transcendence that lies behind the prophetic materials of the Old Testament tells us that the oracles that prophets gave were received from a transcendent divinity who knew history from the beginning, who controlled history from the beginning to the end, and who fixed history from beginning to end. And these are the oracles of true prophets. They were to be received, therefore, as reliable and unquestionable because they came from that kind of God. If the prophets didn't have a certainty that what God planned to do, he could carry through and do, their oracles would have meant nothing. If they had no, no awareness that God was in control of history, that he knew history, that he fixed history, then their words of prediction would have no value whatsoever. That's why so often they use the messenger formula, therefore the Lord says, the Lord declares, or an oracle of Yahweh, Neum Yahweh. So divine transcendence is very important for understanding the authority and the reliability of prophecy. But as we think about the prophets in thematic perspective, it is not only divine transcendence that we must be concerned with, we must also concern ourselves with divine eminence. Now, what do we mean by eminence? The eminence of God, figure 3.5. The eminence of God means this, God's involvement. God's, God as the actus purus, that is pure action. God as pure action. We have to remember that as we look at, West, at systematic theology, that the systematicians are very careful to make it clear that aseity, that God's self-containedness, does not mean he's uninvolved in the world. That his eternality does not mean that he is a-temporality or against temporality or somehow unable to be involved in time. That his immensity does not mean he's absent from space. That his immutability is not the same as immobility. It's extremely important for us to believe this. I'm afraid that sometimes people in my own circles, my own tradition, overemphasize the transcendence of God. Now, I know there are Christian groups that overemphasize the eminence of God. They try to put God in their pocket and think that he's like a genie in a bottle that they can rub and then he comes out and he answers all their needs. This is certainly not the case. God does not wait around to find out what we're going to be doing and he is not in that sense eminent. But we do need to be careful not to go to the other extreme and put God in our pockets by making him ir irrelevantly transcendent. So transcendent that he's not involved in history anymore, not related to the day-to-day -day affairs of life, not actually involved with us in history. On the contrary, I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is a good balance in that it not only speaks of divine transcendence, as we've already seen, but it also speaks of divine providence and eminence. Chapter 5, paragraphs 2 and 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith put it this way, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, now there is the transcendence of God, yet by the same providence, 
He ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes. This means that God uses creaturely means to accomplish His purpose, to accomplish His purposes. He does this either necessarily, that is, some events in the world necessitate the following events, freely or contingently. In other words, God does not make the world like a big, gigantic machine. There really are contingencies and freedom in this world. God in His ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. It's this idea of eminence, where God is actually involved in history, that we must begin to take our point of departure as we start studying how predictions work in the prophetic material. This is the sense in which the Bible often speaks of God repenting. We just saw in the last figure that God does not repent many places in the Bible, but now we find in the Bible that God does repent. You can look at any number of examples, Exodus 32, 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 106, where God actually does repent, or nacham. In this sense, the Bible speaks of God asking questions, God waiting, he, answering, he answers prayer, He intervenes, He blesses, He curses as a participant among secondary causes. This is the picture of God that the prophets used. They did not have a God who simply sat up in heaven and watched things happen down on earth. They had a God who was actually involved in history. He did not wind the world up like a machine and let it go its merry way according to some predicted plan. No, what He did was he had a plan by which all things worked. That's his transcendence. But they did not always talk about his transcendence. They often simply talked about his eminence, and that is God's involvement in history, in the world. And this had a direct bearing on the way that the prophetic word, the prophetic predictions were to be understood by their recipients. And it brings us to figure 3.6. The oracles of true prophets were given in a world in which God participated with secondary causes. That is to say, God was involved with people. And for this reason, many times when the prophets give their prophecies, the fulfillment of their prophecies is contingent to one degree or another on the responses of people. A prophecy could be given and there could be several reactions to that prophecy and the, relate, and the reaction of God depended upon the reaction of the people. And this is a very explicit teaching in the Bible. Many times people have the impression that whenever a prophet said something in the Old Testament, then that prophet word, that prophet's words had to be fulfilled exactly as the prophet had predicted. But this is simply not the case. Jeremiah 18 verses 1 through 12 make it very plain that prophets often said things in order to get people to do things in response to the prophetic word so that then God would decide whether to bless or to curse. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 18, starting with verses 1 through 4. Here we find the, a, Jeremiah going to the potter's house. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Um, Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. So in these first four verses, we find Jeremiah at the potter's house. The potter's work becomes marred, and so the potter begins all over again. 
God then speaks to Jeremiah and makes the analogy or makes the lesson plain. God is like the potter, Israel is like the clay. Then the word of the Lord came to me, verse 5, now verse 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as, the pot, as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted and torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent. Let's stop there for just a moment. Notice that in verses 5 and 6 he says that I, God, am like the potter, and Israel, you are like the clay. And this has certain implications. The implications begin with verse 7. If there's an announcement of judgment or defeat, destruction, then something can happen. Verse 8, And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Do you see what is being said here? God is saying that if he sends a, a prophet and makes an announcement of defeat or an announcement of judgment, if the people will hear that word and repent, then God will relent. He will not send the destruction that he had threatened. So it's very plain here that if an oracle of judgment comes to a kingdom, any kingdom, any nation, that it does not necessarily mean that that judgment will have to take place. There is an implicit condition, and the implicit condition is if the people repent, then I will relent from sending that judgment on them. Verses 9 and 10 go to the opposite extreme of the kinds of prophetic speeches we've already seen. 7 and 8 talking about judgment, now 9 and 10 talking about oracles of salvation. And if at another time I announce that a kingdom, a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Here we have the announcement of prosperity, but is that a sure thing? Is it because God says, I'll bless you? Does that mean he will bless people no matter what they do, no matter what they think, no matter what they say? The answer to that is no. Evil and disobedience among the people who are promised good things will actually cause God to reconsider what he planned to do for them. And so then God goes on in verse 11 to warn Jerusalem, and he also says that Jerusalem will not listen because of the stubbornness of their hearts. And so we see how important the idea of divine eminence is. When the prophets made predictions, they were not making predictions from a God who had already wound up the world and mechanically arranged all sorts, even the contingencies. But when the prophets spoke the words of their predictions, they did not often speak of what had to be in the future, but what might be in the future. That is to say, they offered blessings, they threatened curses. And we can see this in any number of places in the Bible. Figure 3.7 shows us examples of where human reactions actually had significant effects on the words of God or the words of prophets as they spoke on the behalf of God. Take a look, for example, at 2 Chronicles 12, 1 through 12, where Shemaiah the prophet announces that Jerusalem will be destroyed, but then Rehoboam and his nobles repent, and then the prophet comes back and says, okay, I, I won't destroy the city. God won't destroy the city as he threatened to do. Jonah, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Jonah says that the city will be destroyed in 40 days. He does not say if, he just says it will be. But right. as we know, the king of Nineveh and the people repented, and so the threat of judgment did not come against the city. If you take a look at these various examples in the Bible, what, you, what we discover is 
that the fulfillment of a prophecy can be postponed, it can be mollified, and it can even be annulled and reversed depending upon the human reactions to the prophetic word. And this is because the Israelites believed that their God was a living God, a personal God, who didn't just make pronouncements and sit back and watch them happen, but made pronouncements in order to motivate people to react so that then he could bless and curse according to their reactions. Figure 3.8 then illustrates that as we read the prophetic word and we find curses, usually what we should discover in these curses are not absolute pronouncements that a curse will have to take place, but rather a threat of curse. And when we read words of blessing, we don't read of blessings that absolutely have to happen in some particular way, but the offer of blessing and that the results of these prophetic words often depend upon the response of the people. As we go through the various prophetic books, we will discover that on occasion, God makes it very clear that what He says will come about no matter what. For example, He often takes oaths or He, he warns the prophets not to pray on the behalf of the people, things like this in order to ensure that the prophetic word will take place. But for the most part, the judgments and the curses that are offered, as well as the blessings and the salvation that's offered in the prophetic word, are just those. They are offers, not guarantees of what will come. Of course, this brings us then to Roman numeral 1, letter D, the distinction between true and false prophets. Unfortunately, Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22 have been misunderstood. As figure 3.9 suggests, the popular understanding of this passage is that Moses says if a prophet says something that and doesn't come about, that that prophet has to be considered a false prophet. But I think that the correct view of this is to realize that Moses in Deuteronomy 18 knew what Jeremiah 18 teaches, and that is that prophets' words don't always come about, that sometimes the intervening contingency of human response will have an effect on the way the prophetic word shows itself or works itself out in history. And so as we read Deuteronomy 18, you have to remember that it's, say, it's saying uh, that prophecies will come true unless there is some kind of significant contingency, human choice or human contingency, that affects the outcome of the prophecy. And then finally, letter E, the divine incomprehensibility. Let's remember, as figure 310 tells us, that God's ways are not our ways. They are hidden and they are beyond our understanding. And as we look at the prophetic word and we try to understand what it's saying about the future, we had to remember that the prophetic word that was given to human beings was designed to elicit some kind of response from people. But even if a prophetic word elicited a response from people, we cannot be sure exactly how God will respond. After all, God is a person and God is free to act in certain ways according to His own desires and His own plan that goes far beyond our understanding. So God's response is not mechanical, it's not fully predictable, but it will be consistent with His divine character. And that's what I think is happening in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, the first 11 verses, talk about what a locust, that's a locust plague that's going to come. We'll talk about that passage later on in the course. But it's basically saying it's going to be a horrible and dreadful thing. And so 
God says then in verse 12, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? Because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Now, why should a person do this? Why should the people of Israel do this? Verse 14 makes it very plain. It's because, as he says here, who knows he, that's God, may turn and have pity. God may turn and have pity. That is the question. That's the issue. That's the hope. But no one can be sure at any given time how God might react. That's, how, that's why Joel says, who knows? We don't know for sure, but we do know that God is the kind of God who loves to show mercy and loves to relent from sending calamity. So the basic idea of this section of the lecture is that God's character and prophecy interrelate on two levels. On the one hand, God is transcendent, so his word is reliable, and what he plans to do, he will do. But on the other hand, God is eminent, that is, he's involved usually in terms of offering blessings and, and threatening curses, not guaranteeing blessings or guaranteeing curses. And human response is central in the purpose of the giving of the prophetic word. Roman numeral two, prophecy and God's covenants. This raises a big question, doesn't it? Because the basic idea of this next section, as figure 311 raises, is are there bounds that God will not transgress? Can we count on God doing anything with absolute certainty? If God, makes a if God has a prophet say something, and then the prophetic word doesn't have to come about because a human being who hears it might do something like repent, well, does that mean that God can do just anything He wants to, or can we count on Him doing anything for certain? Does Jeremiah 18 remove all certainty of God's reactions to human response? Well, I think that what we're going to say in this lecture will help to some degree to set parameters around the kinds of reactions that God will have. God's fulfillments of prophecies are limited by the covenant bonds that He established for Himself with us. They are, they are limited. God's freedom, God's activity, his reactions are limited by his covenantal promises. To understand this basic idea of the covenants, then we have to, we have to look at the major biblical covenants, and I've outlined these on figure 312. The covenant with Noah, where the stability of the universe is emphasized. The covenant with Abraham, where Abraham's descendants are promised, and they'll, be, they'll multiply and they will have the blessing of the land. The covenant with Moses, which involved the law of God and the law of Moses, where there were structures and arrangements, legal arrangements for the people of Israel. The covenant with David, where David's family is promised that it will reign forever, even though individual Davidites, sons of David, might be judged for being unfaithful. These major biblical covenants, and you can look at these passages and find them, and if you want to look at O. Palmer Robertson's book, Christ and the Covenants, this is a very fine summary of the basic teachings of the covenants in the Old Testament. These basic covenantal structures, Roman numeral 2, letter C, provide parameters which God will not violate. Figure 313 illustrates these parameters. Here we have within the double lines, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Now, these covenants provide inviolable parameters. God will keep his covenants. There's no doubt that's the case. But within the limits of those parameters, there is an unpredictable latitude. You cannot answer from the covenants precisely for whom, when, and how 
these covenants will be kept. Only God knows that for sure. Oh yes, Noah tells us there will be stability in nature, but there are also going to be instabilities for some. Who can know? Only God. Israel will possess Canaan, that's promised to Abraham, but precisely who would possess Canaan and when and how would they do it? Only God knew. The sacrifices, the law, the threat of exile, and the promise of restoration, all given in the Mosaic law. Yes, but precisely who, when, and how would these things come about? And again, the Davidic throne. But which sons? When would they reign? How would they reign? So there are general large-scale certainties given to us through the covenant structures. But the specific small-scale matters of individual lives and particular times must remain uncertainty and uncertain, and God has broad parameters within which He may work out these particularities. The covenantal dimension of the prophetic word is best illustrated in, in Roman numeral 2, letter D, the, the role of blessings and curses. The idea here is, as figure 314 illustrates, we have in the, in the prophetic material many blessings and many curses that come from the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And what you discover is the prophets themselves re rely upon these lists of curses and blessings out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus to give to their people the threats and the offers of curse and blessing in their own day. And so we know that the prophets were very self-consciously instruments of God's covenant stipulations, his emissaries, and they did this by offering the blessings and threatening the curses of the Mosaic covenant. But beyond that, we also know that the prophets, in trying to apply Moses, had received special revelation. Look at figure 315. Moses received special revelation. And his special revelation told Israel the blessings and cursings of the covenant. But the question still remained, how would God apply these blessings and curses? When would he do it? When would, how he, would he go about these things? To what degree? And that took, to know that took special revelation, a second level of special revelation as the arrow swings around down to the prophet. And the prophet was told by God how the blessings and cursings of the Mosaic covenant would be extended to the kings and to the people. That's what figure 315 is all about. This brings us to figure 316 where the blessings and cursings of the covenant are described on an individual level. Exactly how did the blessings and cursings of the covenant relate to individual people? I've tried to illustrate in figure 316 something that's very complicated something that's found throughout the Bible, and I'm trying to put it in a way that will make some sense to us and prepare us for understanding why the prophets could offer the kinds of threats and offerings of blessing that they did. Let's look first up at the top of figure 316, which is God's perspective, the divine perspective, on the covenant relationship, its blessings and curses. When God looks at us, He sees people entering into the covenant relationship. The covenant relationship is the big box in this figure. And here we find at least three people entering into the covenant in three different ways. You see that the person on top enters into the covenant relationship with God through true saving faith and true regeneration. This person is born again and exercises saving faith in Christ. And that person enters into the covenant from outside in that fashion and becomes a covenant keeper and then moves on into eternal blessing. 
The second person, the woman in our figure, enters into the covenant relationship with God, but not through saving faith. This person enters in through the external circumstances and external conformity of the covenant. Maybe this person in the modern context joins the church or um, is baptized or signs a card or makes a profession of faith but does not exercise saving faith at the time. Perhaps also this is a child who was raised in the church, baptized and raised in the church, part of the covenant community but not in the inner box of those who have exercised saving faith. But later on in life, this woman, as the figure illustrates here, comes to saving faith in Christ and moves into the center box and then on to eternal blessing. Then we come to the third person in our figure, and this would be the person who, for in one manner or another, has entered into the external circumstances and has external conformities to the covenant situation with God, but never comes to true saving faith. And this person is lost forever in eternal condemnation. And then finally, you have the person who is outside of the covenant, never comes into covenant relationship with God, and, ne and therefore experiences eternal judgment. In a word, this top figure shows us that being in covenant relationship with God, being in the covenant, being under the blessings and cursings of the covenant is not the same as being saved. I'm afraid that many times evangelicals make the big mistake of thinking that just because the Bible says someone is a brother or someone is a, even a believer or someone is a follower of Christ or is a part of the people of God, something along those lines, that we immediately think that means they're in the middle box of true saving faith. But that is not the case in the Bible from cover to cover. And in the Old Testament, the prophets knew this was the case. They knew that there were people in the covenant that were not truly saved, that is truly regenerated and on their way to eternal blessing. Now that's the divine perspective. To understand these, these kinds of complexities, you could think, by the way, of the sower and the seed parable of Jesus as reflective of this kind of situation. Each one of these people who, who comes into the covenant situation are not necessarily saved. The seed falls on rocky ground, no relationship is established, that would be like a person outside the covenant. The seed falls, it springs up, and it bears uh, a bit of growth, but then it's, it's strangled. Well, this would be like the person who enters into the covenant but never exercises saving faith. But the seed that falls on good land is the one that, where the word comes to the person and the person receives in saving faith and thus experiences the blessing of eternal life. That's the divine perspective. The difficulty here, and it's one that the prophets often faced as well, not just ours, but theirs as well, is that the human perspective um, does not permit us to be able to distinguish between those who are in the big box and those who are in the little box. So you see that the covenant relationship, the blessings and curses of the covenant, we enter into this relationship, some of us by true saving faith and others of us not, generating faith and who does not have true regeneration. And so what we have to say to people and about ourselves and to other people as well, and the prophets do this, is that the more fidelity a person demonstrates in life, the more obedience, the more a uh, person shows conformity to the ways of Christ, the more assurance they can have that they really are in the center box, which cannot be seen by human eye. But those who are unfaithful, those who walk the edge of apostasy, are those who are not, they cannot have high assurance of being in the center box. And the thing that the prophets often did with their ministries was this. They would remind the Israelites that they had false confidence 
that they were in the center box because they noticed that these Israelites who professed to be truly children of God and on their way to eternal life were not living the life that was appropriate for such people. And so the prophets would often challenge them and say to them, look, you cannot live this way and claim to be in the center box of the covenant that is under the salvation of God because judgment starts with the house of God, that is those who claim to be in the center box but who are actually only in the outer box. So when the people of God, of Israel, um, began to show themselves to be unfaithful, the prophets would come and say, you can have no assurance that you will receive eternal life. This is false assurance. Now that's the way it works on the individual level, but on a corporate level we have to also remember that the Bible does not dis often distinguish the ways and the experiences of true believers and unbelievers. Leviticus 26, for example, talks about the covenant relationship being one of blessing and curses, and what we have to realize is that the covenanted people involved both true believers and unbelievers, as figure 317 shows us. Those who have saving faith will be a faithful remnant. They will, they will show fidelity and they will repent when they sin. Unbelievers, those with no true saving faith, are in the covenant relationship, but they will become flagrant violators. They'll become unfaithful and recalcitrant in their rebellion against God. But this will take place in the context of, often, of temporal curses and temporal blessings. For example, Israel was punished with, temp with the temporal curse of exile. Now, it wasn't just unfaithful Israelites who experienced the exile, but faithful ones as well. And the remnant was brought back to the land, but it wasn't just the restoration of the remnant, but it was also the restoration of violators of the covenant. And so you see that you cannot make a one-to-one -one correspondence between the experience of individuals in the covenant situation and the nation as a whole. These things are not altogether clear. And you can see that uh, Romans 11, verses 11 through 24, where Paul talks about the tree being cut off, branches being cut off and grafted on and that sort of thing, he too then is talking about a situation that is a bit vague and a bit strange in our way of thinking. But what we have to do is remember that the believers and unbelievers are not always separated in their experience of the blessings and curses of God here in this life. But whatever the experience of the faithful and unfaithful in this life, we know that the faithful will move on to eternal blessing and the unfaithful to eternal condemnation. Now this then is the kind of thematic background I want us to have as we begin, as we move into this course. First to realize that the doctrine of God that lies behind the prophetic word is one where divine transcendence gives the ground of certainty that the prophet's words are reliable and trustworthy. But at the same time, divine eminence tells us that just because prophets predict that something will take place doesn't mean that it has to take place. In fact, these prophecies are often given to motivate people to respond to God so that God will in fact relent from the judgments that he has threatened against his people. But then we, ask that, we have to ask the question, does that mean God can just do anything he wants to no matter what people say or do? And the answer to that is no, because prophecy is also thematically related to the concept of God's covenant, where God has established certain parameters that he will not violate. And as we understand how the covenant works, we can understand how the prophetic work, word worked within the life of Israel.
The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.